Welcome to this episode of Print Run. My name is Eric Kane, and with me as always is Laura Zatz. Laura, how are you? I'm doing well. How are you, Eric? I'm doing pretty well. Um, We've got a great show for you guys today. Um, We're going to talk about um, a bunch of things, I guess. Um, I guess we should start there. I'm sick of talking about the news on this show. (laughs) And I know that we keep having to, specifically because... um, Things related to the book world keep happening that are simply significant enough that we have to talk about them. But, you know, so <laughs> I feel like when we planned this show out, we were really planning to, like, do more, you know, cinnamon rolls in bookstores than look at the president yanking NEA funding like we're going to talk about. Yeah. Um, <laughs> we literally said earlier today, I think we have enough news. And then two and then hours added, later. Like, two more news things. And yeah. then we did because news happens. Yeah, no. So we don't we don't mean for it to be this way. And we're going to try to be as funny as possible. And as Next light. week is going to be a news-free zone. <laughs> yeah, no, we are we are planning a news-free episode. A, a safe space, if you will, to all, to all the snowflakes Well, actually, out there. <laughs> that's really funny because it's about the female body in literature. But anyway, let's not talk about next week. Let's talk about this week. <laughs> yeah. Um, so anyway, apologies for the seriousness. Obviously, it's been kind of a crazy week in the world, and that always has a way of bleeding into media, which then bleeds into books. Um, so anyway, um, where should we start, Laura? Some housekeeping? Heck yeah. So it's almost February. Mm-hmm. That means it's time to plan our February special content. Oh, God. Our query show, which is available just for Patreon subscribers, goes live on February 9th. And our Mm -hmm. first paid show, similarly for Patreon subscribers, goes live on February 23rd. So that means you've got, you know, just over two weeks to send us your query to printrunpodcast at gmail.com if you want us to rip it apart and ditto with your first pages. So I have one more piece of really interesting information. Uh So we already told you about next week and about how it's not going to be newsy and blah, 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 blah. But the next week after that, so Uh two weeks from now, is going to be the mostest excitingest. Wow. We've really really hit the false superlatives here, haven't we? It's because, Eric, we're going to have a guest. Oh, so, so don't tell them who it is yet. Um, let's leave that for a second. But um, I'm really excited about having guests on the show soon. I think that is an important um, element of what we want to do. I think it's going to be really great for the show because we're going to be able to bring in perspectives, obviously, beyond yours and mine. And I don't know. I think that um, it's going to be kind of a chance to just bring more people into the into the book conversation. And hopefully there's some humor to it. Hopefully there's some insight that you and I can't provide. Um, I don't know. It's When we were talking earlier this year about, all right, what do we want the show to look like in 2017? Um, this was kind of the main thing that I think we wanted. And it's starting to, it, we're starting to schedule people. And um, I guess, like, you know, if you're liking the show, like, and if you're, like, now is a great time to jump in if you're trying to convince others or if you're thinking of checking us out, this is your first time, like, um, it's going to get really good, I think, because we're going to start bringing in some really interesting people with some really good perspectives. More interesting than us. Oh, yeah. No, everyone's more interesting than my stupid takes. I mean, this <laughs> this will be really good. Um, it's like, you know, it's less of me talking. What could be bad about that? It means we're um, also going to start doing giveaways. Yeah, no, there's a whole bunch of things. I think it's going to just, you know, we're going to start try to build a community around the show a little bit um, full of other people with interesting book perspectives. But um, I think that you and I agree that the first person we have coming on in a couple weeks is someone we are really excited about. So why don't you tell us who it is? Okay, so our first guest is not a gong. 
Our first guest is Miss Lily Anderson, who is actually my author. Uh-huh. She is the author of The Only Thing Worse Than Me Is You, out from St. Martin's Press, yeah. and the forthcoming Not Now, Not Ever, out from Wednesday Books, which is actually the same thing. They just had a name change. Yeah. Um, we're going to be doing a giveaway. We're going to have more details later. It's going to be really fun. Yeah. She's the one that we fight with online a lot. and we've <laughs> I got, do fight with her a lot online. Hi, we've Lily. got some interesting stories. <laughs> we've got some interesting stories. Yeah. Um, so, And we're also going to be covering some, some interesting interpersonal dynamics. Yeah. And we're going to have some... You know, you'll actually be able to hear the story of how she found her agent. Yeah, pl- yeah, it's an author, right? Like, I feel like it's an author who's really had some success. And so for a lot of our listeners who I know are aspiring or authors who are kind of young in their careers, um, this will be great to hear from her about that, about any number of things, about her experience writing, about all the things she does. Um, and I, for one, am, am very excited to have her on. Me too. Especially since I feel like I were like nine apologies based on my internet behavior, <laughs> so that'll be good to, to air out. But uh, that'll um, be fun. Yeah, no, we're, we're really excited about it, and you know, she'll be the first of um, what I think and believe and hope will be a really nice lineup of guests uh, throughout the throughout the rest of the year and moving forward. Um, I think it's going to be a really nice wrinkle to the show, so we are excited. Hooray! So let's move on to the actual show then. Our the first uh, dish of our tapas style yeah. show this week. Yeah. So this is something that's very near and dear to my heart in its own way. Um, this issue. Um, I think everyone has seen that 1984 um, has uh, risen up the book charts. I mean, I think it's the number one selling book. It's number one and number five. Oh, there's another edition that's number five now? Of course. So everyone's buying 1984, and, um, well, I mean, you can imagine why that is, um, given the state of things and why people might be inclined to buy that book. Um, But something funny happened, and I want to start with there as kind of the starting point for my point here. Um, So The Guardian ran an article, as, you know, we so so often love The Guardian, but they – you know, and their point was, you know, basically – Look how much the world is like 1984, which has been everyone's very tired point um, throughout this last week and everything. Um, but they printed an excerpt from the book. Read it uh, for us, yeah. Eric. <laughs> so I want to read. I want to read the excerpt of the book that the Guardian printed from 1984 as showing us how much like the real world uh, this book now is. You know, in our new authoritarian life. But um, here we go. Ready. <clears throat> Facts matter more than anything, insisted Winston. Facts are worth more than all the tea in China. Why, I'd rather have some facts than than a house made of solid gold. Big Brother smirked. Facts are whatever I say they are. For example, trains are small, really small. You could fit a train in the palm of your hand. That's not true, sputtered Winston. I was on a train just yesterday. It was the biggest damn thing I'd ever seen. No, boomed Big Brother. It was small. Welcome to tiny train world, Winston. Enjoy not being able to catch a train anymore on account of they're too small, you idiot. <laughs> <laughs> so here's the thing with that excerpt um, that The Guardian printed in their article. Um, it's not from the book. It's ma- <laughs> <laughs> it's, it was made up. It was written by a, um, a Twitter user, at um, pixelatedboat. You should follow that account. It's very funny. But, yeah, this, this person just, like, wrote up a fake 1984 quote. Um, and posted it, preying on the exact thing that I think is so funny, 
which is that people just lunge for the easiest illusion possible anytime anything happens in the world. And this guy g- tapped into it so much that someone, I guess, working on staff at The Guardian saw him was like, yep, print it, without even like checking that to see if it was in the book. <laughs> They're just like, oh, yeah, the world is like that. And the, the funniest part is that they looked at tiny train world. You know? <laughs> like, tiny train yeah, world. This is made-up thing that this guy just like put in – you know, pretending it was a part of 1984 and like outlets were running with it for a day and they since corrected the article. But I think that that kind of quick, you know, knee jerk um, take that, oh, man, the world is like 1984. It speaks to something I, I have always found a little irritating, which is that anytime um, something happens in politics or the world that the first thing everybody tries to do is say, oh, this event X is like and then they like just like pick whatever book is like the first thing they think of and then just run with it and try to eventually, as we see, conform the actual version of the truth to that, their, like, very simple understanding of that book. Do you think that the Hulu adaptation of The Handmaid's Tale is just going to be, like, pictures of Trump and Elizabeth Warren? <laughs> That's what I mean. It's just like, but it, it just it just simplifies it. And it's, um, the one thing I do not begrudge in this situation um, I do think it's it's interesting that everyone has bought this book, that it is the number one bestseller. And I think there's something very earnest about that, that you would think of a book that fits the situation and go buy it and read it. But what feels silly to me is this content grab that happens with every publication. You see it with The Guardian here. Um, the New Yorker had an article today written by someone I really like, Adam Gopnik. Um, and he, he, he threw, 90, you know, he's like how Trump is, you know, is like 1984 or – I think that he was even like, it's just pure, this whole thing is pure big brother or whatever. And there was like one throwaway line in the article about the book. And then the rest was just a political commentary that had nothing to do with the book. And it's like everyone is just very nakedly grabbing on this, you know, book momentum to kind of get, you know, it's clickbait. It really is. It's literary clickbait. And that's, you see it with other books. You see it with Harry Potter a lot, um, you know. They on, named a crab on, after a yeah. Harry Potter character. Yeah, but like this anytime week. anything happens, suddenly the Game of Thrones references come out. Harry Potter comes out. Obviously, now we've got 1984 making a comeback in terms of just the easy illusion to make it sound like you're read and ready um, to talk about the world as it relates to literature. And there's nothing wrong with it, but I do think there's something disingenuous about this fast grab for a headline that honestly has nothing. You're just trying to like capitalize off book buying momentum to get people to click on your story because it is interesting right like so oh, it's like 1984 it's so orwellian you're seeing that a lot every suddenly every single person in america is like an orwell scholar <laughs> oh this is pure orwellian this is this is just it's like shut up man <laughs> um but yeah so i don't know i just get a little i get a little itchy when people well, start reaching for the fast illusion but okay so so do you want people to go for the slow illusion then I, I mean, because this is what literature is for, right? Literature is for actual engagement, not headlines to then make a completely separate point. Mm. I mean, no, there's no, it's like I said, and that's why I don't begrudge people at all for going out and thinking of this book and wanting to buy it and read it, because that's engagement with the text, you know? But this, what we've just pointed to here, um, they specifically didn't read it. In fa- and in fact, they thought some made up words were a part of the book, you know? And it's like that, that feels like, that's like low-hanging fruit that you're just trying to drive traffic, and that's not really a service to the situ- – certainly not to the situation, which I think we can all agree is very serious And to the right powerfulness now. of literature as it can communicate yeah. very difficult and nuanced ideas. I, yeah. No, I just don't think it does a service to either the thing being alluded to or the situation 
And unless it's on a deeper level, I'm not saying that all comparisons of a world to a book are bad. Certainly not. In fact, many are good. I think it's a great way to talk about things, but you have to really do it, you know? Like sometimes it's just retweet bait or it's um, it's getting somebody to click on your post. Um, even if the post is good, it's like don't just throw 1984 in the title. Like just if you to... are, there better be some and, – And I'm not know. saying there are, yeah. there are – there are clear parallels to – I mean there are parallels I feel like between 1984 and what's happening now. But the people who are most loudly proclaiming it are not the ones doing the engaging with it. Or and the ones that have read it. Yeah. Perhaps. Well, I feel like we <laughs> I feel like we all sort of read 1984 in like, you know, like 10th grade and you it's like you had like the reading comprehension test in like 5 minutes so you were like at your locker and you know You know, I Yeah, I, I, was I know trying, that I like skimmed and I was trying to rack my brain <laughs> yeah. earlier and I was like, "Have I read 1984? Have I read 1984?" And I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. Well, so I think one thing on a more serious note than quit searching for clickbait um, this does speak to the power of the canon, right? Like, sure. This is, um, you know, when we talk about what, why the canon matters, like we've talked about, um, it's because books in the canon end up being used for this purpose, right? They're the things people turn to when they're trying to seek answers. You know, when you're looking for your book to compare the world to, and you're trying to find answers in fiction, which I think is a perfectly valid thing to do. Um, you're going to go to something that everyone's heard of that you can talk about with someone else who's read it. And the only way that a book enters that kind of space is if it's been entered into some sort of canon. So, like, um, I think when we talk about, well, how are we going to shape the canon in the future and stuff, it's especially important because those Turn are Turn it into clickbait. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> those, are the, those are the books in the future that are going to be used to help understand – they're going to be the frame of reference for a future situation in the world. And it's like that's why it's so essential to – Really make sure we understand what it is we're putting in and what isn't, and be, and be methodical about it, and yeah. be intentional about exactly. it. Exactly. Anyway, I, <laughs> good soapbox, so, Eric. Yeah. So mostly, I just thought it was funny that um, the Guardian ran with a fake quote from 1984 about, about tiny, real, about 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 tiny train world <laughs> and fake facts. Yeah. And fa- yeah. Exactly. Um, so. Because anyway. we need more of those. <laughs> so, yeah, that's the thing. It was a fake fact no. quote about – it was a faked, fake quote about fake facts. Eric, don't you know that this isn't a false quote? It's an alternative it's quote. Al- <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's an alternative quote. Uh, well, speaking of the canon. Yeah. So I've decided kind of without Eric's yes um, mm-hmm. it, it, that we're every once in a while going to include – a positive thing in the world with regards to literature and news and et cetera. Oh, I say yes um, to that. Okay, for, good. For, for the record. <laughs> for the record. It's just I didn't throw it by him. Um, and it's this this particular segment is good job, Virginia. <laughs> <laughs> I think we should make that this segment every week. Just pick a Virginia-specific thing. Like it doesn't even have to be related to books. Like Virginia raised, you know, dropped its corn price today. Good. All right. Good job, Virginia. <laughs> anyway. Um, so good job, Virginia. Yep. This week, the State Board of Education threw out this ridiculous piece of legislation uh-huh. that basically required, like, parental warnings issued yep. on books that were assigned in school to be given to parents that included sexual content. <laughs> um, so that means that there would have been a big no-no sexual content sign on Beloved. Yeah. On the diary of Anne Frank. Oh my God. Which is funny because all she does is like dream about people. Yeah. Um, and then Romeo and Juliet. And here that's the one I find So they want to slap labels 
on for sexual on content. Literally everything. And do you but, know what my favorite part about the Romeo and Juliet one mm-hmm. is that it's filled with dick jokes yeah. and nobody knows. Right, they're just like, like really opaque. <laughs> yeah, well, they're not even. It's just, you yeah. know, it's written in, you right. know, early, like early yeah, modern, Shakespearean you know, English, yeah. whatever. And so a lot of people are like, oh, they're 14 and they had <laughs> sex at the end. Well, no, guess what? That like balcony scene where, where you know, Juliet's going, Romeo, Romeo, where for Arthur Romeo? She's, she's talking about him and she says, and any other part belonging to a man. Guess mm. what? That's his dick. It's a dick, folks. It's a dick. And you know what? <laughs> she makes them a lot. She makes them with her nurse a lot. Romeo and his buddies make dick jokes a lot. Yeah. It's full of dick jokes. And that's not what they were angry at. They were angry at the sexual content of the fact that they may or may not have consummated their marriage. Oh, my God. Which is funny. <clears throat> that is anyway, funny. So, but they shot this down. They shot this down. Yeah. So, And here's why. Yeah. Um, the Virginia Board of Education rejected this proposal yeah. saying, quote, defining sexually explicit content was not a matter for the board. Mm-hmm. So they they can't decide what is sexually explicit content. So here's my, my question for you, Eric. Mm-hmm. Well, it's not really a question. It's a statement. I think that print run should decide what is sexual content. <laughs> we should. <laughs> we should have a – we should decide what's sexual and what isn't. Um, the first thing I've decided to make a ruling on is everything George R. R. Martin does besides write his book. <laughs> I've, just, I've decided to classify as sexual content. Do you know what I've decided um, yeah. is also sexual content? Yeah. Any discussion of me eating cheese not in public <laughs> – yeah, Whenever yeah. I'm alone no, eating rulings, cheese, it's yeah, bad. Yeah, we need to get this in front of the Virginia, the Virginia uh, Congress. Yeah, um, I think I think it should be us. I think it's yeah. up to us. It is up to us. Yeah. As so many things are. <laughs> <laughs> but my favorite part of this this little this little thing is that this good job Virginia comes at a kind of the tail end of a whole flurry of ridiculous legislation at various school boards. Mm. Um, about banning things. You know, of yeah. course, they wanted to ban a whole bunch of books for graphic sex and blah, right, blah, right, blah. Right. And, right. You know, Huck Finn always for racist content, right. et cetera, et right. cetera. Um, but my favorite one is that Washington State just turned down a uh, something – or they just turned down a proposal to ban, quote, potentially frightening books um, from state subsidies. Frightening books? Frightening books from nurseries. What do they want – real quick, what do they want to happen in these books? Like what if we can't if there's no sex and there's nothing that's scary like what violence what counts violence violence counts violence isn't scary well this is okay so the the scary stuff is for nurseries so like babies I and feel like, like this, these are people who really like Virginia Wolf where like just nothing fucking happens in the whole <laughs> like Walden like to Pond the, like I feel like two yeah Walden and like to the lighthouse from Virginia Wolf where like the only book everyone in Virginia becomes like this like esthete where all they know how to do is like be one with nature anyway but this is uh, Washington so yeah, yeah, Washington yeah. they actually passed this and then they they repealed it I think yeah. because so they were they banned potentially frightening books, not even just frightening books, uh-huh. but potentially frightening books. Um, clearly, they didn't want a burning Mrs. Havisham depicted in felt uh-huh. for children. Um, so it emerged that daycare providers were refusing to read where the wild things are. <laughs> <laughs> Is where the wild things are scary? I mean, I don't remember it being the scary. movie is really scary, but the I book isn't the scary. Like, book? you know, he, like, has a good time. The monsters are friendly. I remember he comes the back home. His sad. soup is still yeah, hot. Yeah, exactly. I remember the book being sad because he has yeah. a fight. He has a, like, I, I haven't read he it. He fights with his mom. fights with his mom, right? And he which, goes away which on a little me, boat. Yeah, that, like, fighting with my mom would have, like, you know, crushed me as a young boy. <laughs> oh, cute. <laughs> so. Hi, mom. 
Hi, mom. Um, yeah. So where scary, the wild things huh? are? Yeah. Well, because they're they're wild. I don't know. Well, they're just big. Or, either that, or they're terrified of late night hot soup. Don't they just dance around and make him their king? Kind or something? of. Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. they like kind of like threaten to keep him there and whatever, but like yeah. in a you know in a way that makes him realize where center. he really belongs. It's a lovely book. Yeah. Yeah. So they weren't reading where the wild things are, and then apparently that just didn't go. Like Maurice Sendak, like no. Uh, yeah. Like Maurice needs to be here. Yeah. <laughs> There we go. Anyway, good job, Virginia. Good job, Virginia. Good job, Virginia. Yeah, no, that's that's crazy. No scary, no sex. This is this is honestly why um like the worst conservatives like on the internet hate us is because they think we're like slapping trigger warnings on everything, which it turns out we apparently are trying to. So I <laughs> I guess I guess they're right. But who knows? Harry Potter is of the devil, apparently. Yeah, no, I remember I remember that one. I was like I went to um, that book was banned in my elementary school was for a while. Was it really? Yeah, no, I went to a public. I went to like a public. I mean, so did I. School too. No, and it, it got banned for a while, and we had to. Uh, we got it back. I remember all of us like signed a petition, and I. I mean, Cute. I was in like fourth grade, so I'm sure that wasn't the reason they brought it back. But I remember signing the petition, and then getting it back. I. Um, it was never banned. Yeah. But, but I, then again, I went to like Minnesota public school, which is like. Fairly yeah. good about arts yeah. and whatever. Um, but I remember there was one kid in my third grade class who couldn't be there when they read Harry Potter out loud and she had to go sit in the hall and like do worksheets. Oh, I know. Poor kid. I know. Dang. What do you think I she's know. doing now? I don't know. I bet she's got like a pixie <laughs> punk haircut and like has her lip pierced and stuff, which is very bad for your gums. Yeah. Anyway. Oh, man. Good job, Virginia. Good job, Virginia. Do you know what's not good? Tell me what isn't good. The NEA. The NEA isn't good. The NEA is good, I Well, thought. the NEA, but the NEA <coughs> is not in a good position. Right. The NEA is being cornered. Um, so this is this is a transition. We're on to the next thing now. We need some work on that. <laughs> <laughs> we are very bad at transitions. We're, we're actually – I think we're too – I think we're too good at them. It's like all of a sudden we're on to the next thing. It's like – What's it like? Whiplash. <laughs> we need like you know what we need, Laura? What? Is like one of those soundboards with like drops and sound effects and stuff. You know we have that, right? Do we No, I did not know that we had that. We have that. I want that next. I want to switch computers next time and I want to be the one to I like, mean like I don't have it on my computer, but like, like I can, can I get start it like on hitting like the reggae air horn and stuff well, like whenever one of us starts talking? Folks, we're getting we're getting into the like the how the sausage is made, but no, you put that in after. Like okay. you don't like play it; you put it in with like a computer file, like yeah, okay. from Pro Tools, and that's it's a so, thing. That yeah. sounds good, but I'm also going to find a way to have an air horn. If you want an air, we have a gong. Yeah, but I, I think if you that want an air horn or like a Jamaican my, something, my like you sound get effect, it. My sound effect taste is expanding, and I need more options immediately. Um, so expect that soon. Um, a, that'll be Lily. I'll, I'll there's there's Lily. an instrument store like three blocks away. <laughs> yeah. Go for it. All right. Anyway, moving on. Please tell me what the actual thing we're trying to talk about is. <sighs> Donald Trump is trying to get rid of the National Arts Foundation mm, and the National Humanities uh, National Endowment for Humanities. Yeah, totally. That's fine. Yeah. Let's... National Endowment for the Arts and the National Endowment for the Humanities. Scrap there it. we yeah, go. Yeah, I mean, this is a man who never reads any fucking books, so I can't yeah. imagine why he thinks this is silly. Um, yeah, so these are things that, you know, pay for NPR. Mm -hmm. These are things that pay for PBS mm -hmm. and also like ridiculous public arts projects yeah. Yeah. like Puppy Hamlet. Pup well, hold on, hold on, <laughs> hold on. 
Hold on. Hold on. It might be dog Hamlet. This it's either dog or puppy Hamlet. Well, you're not putting real dogs in Hamlet. You're putting puppies. I don't want to watch dog yeah, Hamlet. Yeah, they, they herd sheep. It happens like all it's – like it's like a sheep dog – like choreographed dance with like people standing and like reciting lines. It's wonderful. I and watched Trump, like three and, minutes of it. And earlier. Trump has gone to war with this. In with this first, okay, particularly yeah. sure. because he's trying to cut spending. Yeah, he's cutting spending. And he's picked the so arts, he's yeah. just getting rid of all of the arts, which is sure. good because the arts are scary to yeah. him. Just like stairs <laughs> and and <laughs> yeah. and they present ideas that he doesn't like. Like look that, look that sex up by the way, where the guys. Wild like he, are. he actually is like scared of stairs. Yeah, that's why he was holding um, Theresa May's hand. <laughs> anyway, yeah. Um, so. We looked it up, and the National Endowment for the Arts, specifically, ignoring the humanities and et cetera. Yeah. Um, so altogether, like, all of these programs that he's trying to get rid of yeah. cost um, an American about $22 a year. Yeah. The National Endowment for the Arts costs Americans 46 cents a year per person, which Ooh. is equivalent of $147 million. Sure. Seems like a lot of money for people like you and me. Well, I'm, yeah, but that's a small portion of – the government budget. Like, it, it's a tiny portion. I mean, what are we paying? I, if I remember correctly, there was like talk when we were keeping Melania in New York City that was going to cost like two hundred million just to two hundred million a year just to, <laughs> year to a year to make sure her security detail was fine out in New York as opposed to being in D.C. And the National Endowment for the Arts budget is one hundred and forty-seven million. Do you know yeah. what? So I did a little research. <laughs> here, God, here is what costs more than the National Endowment for the Arts. Okay. The Titanic. <laughs> and I'm talking the ship, not the movie. So the so ship. The, the ship. The boat. Uh, the boat. Yeah. Adjusted for inflation. Oh, I was going to ask. Well, I was going to make a really snob-ass point about inflation, but I'm glad you've caught Shut me. Shut up. <laughs> Adjusted for inflation, it cost $174 yeah. million. Dollars, uh-huh. And it had not even a full run. like not, And it didn't even carry that many people. No. I mean, a lot of people died and it was a tragedy, but like it didn't even carry that many people. The Titanic. Costs significantly more than the mm-hmm. NEA. Mm-hmm. I'd say um, the Titanic's way better use of money than arts. What, yes. Get on that boat. <laughs> Hell yeah. And then sink. Think about how much art the Titanic think, has produced. Yeah. Think about that. That you know Leo how many how many Oscar. <laughs> he didn't get the Oscar for the Titanic. He got the he got the Oscar for the Titanic. All right. He it was it was a lifetime achievement award for which the <laughs> Titanic was included because I'm sure as hell wasn't the fucking Revenant. That movie sucked. Anyway. The cinematography was beautiful. When he climbed out of that bear, you think about it. That was pretty good. Anyway, continue. Uh, What also costs more than the NEA? (laughs) The marketing budget for the movie Avatar. (laughs) You guys, not even the movie, the marketing budget. For the movie, so like all like it's like stupid commercials where it was like just like blue people flying around. Yes, and like... that was a hundred and fifty million dollars. <laughs> yeah, the NEA gets a hundred and forty-seven million. What also costs more than the <sighs> NEA? One forever stamp purchased by everyone in America. The forever stamp is now forty-nine cents, uh-huh. or as a, as uh-huh. of Sunday or something. Uh-huh. Forty-nine cents. Uh-huh. This is the NEA is forty-six cents a person per mm-hmm. year. If you buy a whole booklet of forever stamps, like that's like funding the NEA until forever. You know, one stamp, one letter. I can't believe this shit. One letter. Do you know yeah. what also is significantly more right. than the NEA? Uh-huh. Adding guacamole to my Chipotle burrito, <laughs> which so like, is $1.80. So like if everyone in America went to Chipotle. No, only a quarter of America <clears throat> went to Chipotle and put guac on their burrito. And put guac on their burrito. 
And then Chipotle, for some reason, decided to give the guac proceeds for a quarter of America to the NEA. That would more that would than pay cover for it. it. We'd do it. Yes. But this, jeez. <laughs> Oh, guacamole that's... costs more. Actually, it might get more expensive now that the whole like Mexican wall thing happens. So who knows? Who knows how few people need to buy guacamole at Chipotle? Yeah. Um, the, yeah that's crazy, though. I mean, obviously, none of us want the NEA or the NEH cut. Um, it's a terrible, terrible idea. Um, it, and it's so low upside because like we are not trimming even that much. I mean, we don't have to get into we don't have to get into that. But I do think um, one thing I think we both saw today that we re- we thought was worth mentioning um, was Publishers Weekly, which is a trade magazine um, that does book news and stuff. They're pretty, you know, they're, they're good for just basic industry news. I mean, they're public and everything. It's not like Publishers Marketplace or something. So, um, you know, you can this is like where you read about just different book stuff, but they released in their own editorial statement today about this, right? And um, I mean, I won't read the whole thing to you. It's a little bit long, but there's one There's one bit, um, you know, the first sentence of this thing, and they released just a, um, you know, they've never done this. They've never, you know, they are a, um, they're, like I said, they're a publication that reports the news, right? Like usually their articles are very brief. They're practically just blog posts about, you know, book deals or things that just kind of very, very basic run-of-the-mill mechanical book facts of the day. But here's this giant article from them, from their editorial staff. Yeah. Um, and the first the first line is, there never has been a president whose election has caused as much widespread alarm among so many people in all segments of the publishing industry as Donald Trump. Um, and I guess I'll read the next line too because it seems instructive. Many in the industry would acknowledge having some many in the industry would acknowledge having something of a liberal bent, but other Republican presidents who have won the White House while greeted with a certain amount of wariness by the publishing community were given a grace period so that industry members could see what policy initiatives they would champion. Trump has been given no such leeway and for good reason. From his speeches during the campaign to his appointments to his admitted disinterest in reading books, Trump has challenged many of the core principles of publishing. Um, and then it goes on to talk about his assault on the First Amendment, uh, free speech issues, and things like that. Um, and then you know, and it mentions the you know the NEA and everything in here. Um, but then the the meat of the article here is where it says, um, "This is why uh, Publishers Weekly is following the lead of Penguin Random House and Hachette Book Group and offering to pay half its employees' membership fees to Pen America." In announcing HBG's Pen effort, CEO Michael Peach observed that we are now. In a climate where free speech is especially important and in that spirit, PW urges other publishers to back the First Amendment through whatever efforts they deem to be most effective. So footnote for all of you that don't know what Pan America is because as of 4 o'clock today, I sure as hell didn't. Pen America is obviously the American division of Pen International, which um, has for close to 100 years um, been – Basically fighting for representation and, and you know, speech yeah. rights, et cetera. Yeah. So what's really interesting is that they were formed as a direct response to the ethnic and national divisions that contributed to the First World War. Yeah. So they were like, hey, this is bad. Like, let's have an organization that, like, gets good books <clears throat> out there and well, so good that's content the, out that's there. That's the thing with the NEA and the NEH and all these, like, you know, governmental or large cultural – um, arts foundations is they were usually started as a response to crisis, you know, 
they're organizations that are meant because that exist because there's some intrinsic human value to art and books in the face of you know strife and i i think it's interesting that um you know i mean you know it's it's i i think it's great that they're doing this but i think it's more interesting that they felt the need to release sort of an unprecedented statement about it like yeah. again this first week and obviously it's kind of spurred by um trump's broadcasting that he doesn't want to that he wants to cut the nea um but like people are people are freaked out about this and this kind of gets back to my point where i wish that we weren't talking about this stuff that much i don't like this stuff any more than than you guys do you know um but here it is, and that's what, like, when you when Laura and I put together these episodes and was like, all right, what's going on in the book world today? This is what's going on in the book world today and every day the last, you know, couple of weeks. Um, and it seems like each day there's something new and significant that's happening, obviously, in, you know, the world beyond the scope of our show, but also here. Like, the book world is responding to this stuff, and re- the writers are responding to this stuff, and they're doing – and they're trying to do all the things they can – to preserve themselves because they feel under attack. And Publishers Weekly, they really do make it seem like all of publishing is coming together and is, you know, standing against the current administration. Um, And, you know, they've even said in here, PW is prepared to serve as a vehicle to help organize industry efforts regarding the protection of the First Amendment and other key publishing issues, such as the protection of intellectual property and adequate funding for education and cultural organizations. Mm-hmm. So, and, you know, I'd, I'd, agree, I'd agree that that's true, that most of publishing is coming together for those things. Yeah, um, most, But as, as we're going to talk about a little later, you know, Publishing is very much going to come together about the First Amendment. And in that in that kind of case, in the publishing multiple viewpoints, PW is correct and that publishing is very liberal. But, you know, the whether or not publishing is liberal is something we've talked about quite a bit on this show. Yeah, I, don't, I wouldn't agree um, about very liberal based on all the things we've talked about in right. prior episodes. I don't know that but it's so, – yeah. So I would like to call your attention to – I love what Publishers Weekly is doing and following the lead of Penguin Random House and Hachette. And, you know, they're they're fighting for the arts. They're fighting for knowledge. They're fighting for truth. Um, but one thing that they totally left out is people. Yeah. They're and, – and I would like to kind of hold that up as a mirror to something else that happened this week. Yeah. So that's our – this is the next thing. So notice that Publishers Weekly is interested in intellectual property and funding for education, cultural organizations – and of course, the First Amendment. Now they are so. All of these are great things. In their defense, um, as compared to what we're about to talk about, um, you know, they are an organization. They are not an individual. They, you know, their job is to do the exact thing they just. Um, like it's not their job, but it's it's the perfect space for them to have an opinion. Correct. On the exact thing they just talked about, but. Um, but so I, where publishing is a little bit different, yeah. where they're where they're fighting each other, uh, comes down to one. Uh, heroic lady this week, Roxanne Gay mm-hmm. of bad feminist fame. Uh, uh-huh. Roxanne Gay had a book forthcoming <clears throat> this year with uh, – the book was called How to Be Heard and it was supposed to come from Simon & Schuster. Um, it was supposed to come out March of next year actually from TED Books, mm-hmm. which is an imprint which I um, have since learned is, you know, like the TED Talks. Like they – 
TED Talks and Simon oh, Schuster got together and had a baby. Oh, they uh, got the an TED imprint Talks baby. Too. I remember having that's a whole separate thing. That they doesn't did. Matter. Continue. Yep. Yep. Anyway, so <laughs> she she was she has a yeah. book called How to Be Heard. It even has a cover. It's not even going to be published for mm, fourteen months. Yeah. And she. Okay, so the, she, the, pulled the, she pulled it. So this, yeah. <laughs> I have to say, if you hear little pauses here, it's because the story was broke by broken by BuzzFeed, and BuzzFeed <laughs> like writes these articles, like they they separate the statements into tiny little manageable it's chunks. So, so I have to so keep that, scrolling. Yeah, it's so that dumb people like me can read the large font summaries in between <laughs> the actual text. I need this very much for my uh, Twitter ruined brain. Yeah. So she she pulled it. She yeah. said she can't in good conscience let them publish it while they also publish Milo. So she was, you know, the the timeline was coming for her to turn this book in, assuming that she, you know, she yeah. sold it on spec. Um, and she was writing it and writing it and writing it and then couldn't bring herself to turn it in. Um, yeah, it's really funny because when the announcement uh, – this is a direct quote from her. When the announcement about Milo's book first came out, I was relieved because I thought I didn't have a book with Simon and & Schuster and tweeted something to that effect. Then I remembered my TED book. I would love to just like be a successful enough author where you could just like, oh, remember a book coming out in two years? Like, oh, I guess I have that deal already. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I remembered my that, TED that book. That part is interesting of this. but And yeah. that TED is an imprint of Simon & Schuster. I was supposed to turn in the book this month, and I was thinking about how egregious it is to give someone like Milo a platform for his blunt, blunt inelegant hate and provo- pro- provocation. Thank you. Oh, it's late. I, I just couldn't bring myself to turn the book in. My editor emailed me last week, and I kept staring at that email in my inbox. And finally, over the weekend, I asked my agent to pull the book. Sure. Um, so, um, yeah, she, so she yanked it. I mean, she said that she didn't want to be published by the same house as Milo. Um, and obviously, we're not going to get back into him. We've talked about him a bunch on this show already. Um, go listen if you haven't heard us do that. But um, The episode is dangerous. <laughs> dangerous. Uh, Danger zone. Um, <laughs> um, but uh, so – but she's – I think it's interesting. You know, there's something here. And obviously, um, she – She's made a choice here to pull her book because um, she doesn't want to be published alongside someone she feels is hateful. Now, some things of note here. The first is that she's at a different imprint, right? Like, so she's at a completely she's under a completely different editorial vision, presumably. Her editor doesn't even work for Simon and Schuster. Right, right exactly. Her editor like, is under Ted. She's about as separate from Milo as she could possibly be within the same publishing house. I think I, I think it's fair to say. Yes. And, um, yeah, I mean, I guess – so it's interesting that even amidst that, she – and I and I think she's – there's something worth applauding here, to be clear. I'm just kind of trying to look at it. Um, she said even with those things in play that she still didn't want to be published alongside Simon & Schuster and Roxanne Gay is obviously a successful author. And so, you know, I don't know if it – I mean, it certainly doesn't help Simon & Schuster. It hurt. It's going to hurt. You know, you can't lose giant authors. That's not how you – that's not how you stay in business. Um, and – you know, there's something here. You know, my first thought was, you know, when she said this, and I admit that I'm a cynic, um, was that what an amazing amount of flexibility or an amazing amount of success you have to have achieved 
to have pulled to just be able to decide that you're pulling a book before it starts publishing. So if you're not familiar, if you pull a book, if you break a contract, you have to pay back. Yeah, you pay back the advance, of the, all of the money. And, and so for a book like this, and you're that, done, and you're not gonna, and it's not gonna publish. Like you're not gonna make any. Like this is basically a high profile. Um, book that she would have sold. Presumably, it would have done well because it's well, it's her. already sold. So, so what that what this this book yeah. is? What this means is that they paid her in advance mm-hmm. on you know a basically a proposal, mm-hmm. and for with the idea of her using that advance to live as she writes the book. Right. So she had right. to have the material um, flexibility to be able to pay that back yeah. or to not have lived yeah. on this amount. Yeah, and so she and she acknowledges that. Uh, where is the Where is the quote here? Um, let's see. I am not interested in doing business with a publisher willing to grant Milo this privilege. I am also fortunate enough to be in a position to make this decision. Uh-huh. I recognize that other writers aren't and understand that completely. Well, so that's the thing that this kind of it kind of throws down a gauntlet, right? In a way, because everyone apl- applauded this immediately. Everyone said, "This is what a great stand, what a great thing." But my question is, it's twofold. Um, does this put any sort of burden on other authors of equal stature? Because I think it would be totally, I think it should be clear, it would be totally unfair to expect something like this. From a debut um, author. From, from an author who need, who's publishing to, you know, because they need to write, you know, they need money. They need to write, which is the reason that you hope to sign with a big five, you know, house. It's like because you know there's going to be some sales and you know there's going to be an advance and all these things. Like you can't ask that of everyone, you know. And she's, you know, decided to do this and it makes me wonder if everyone in the publishing world is applauding this. Everyone in the um, book world thinks this is the best thing that's happened. What, what about those who stay? What about those who stay silent? Because I – find it hard to blame those people for wanting to stay because I think and I because I think that the argument for Roxanne Gay staying where she was would have been fine. I think she could have very easily sent out a statement if she had felt compelled that says, luckily I'm part of a completely separate imprint from Milo. Luckily um, my book is as as we just said, is as far away from this guy's book as possible within the same house. It has nothing to do with it and therefore I feel comfortable. Um, but she didn't say that and she took kind of a larger stand and there's something to be um, proud of there for her. Um, but it does – I feel like it does send somewhat of a message. Like if this is the thing we think is the standard of goodness, what what does it say about others? And I, because I think that it, I think that it puts a lot of people, um, and this is not a fault of hers, but it, I think all of a sudden you're going to start seeing people look side eyed at other authors who decide to stay with Simon big and authors. Schuster, big big authors to be clear, who stay with Simon and Schuster, and it's like I don't know that I blame those people, you know, I don't know that I don't think that I do. If that's because, where their cash is coming from, because I don't think there's, yeah. <laughs> I'm a big believer in arts that you should get your money, because there's so little money. You know, at times in especially now. Yeah, exactly. I mean, arts and books. Like, I don't begrudge authors for when you know they say I wanted to go here because the advance was bigger. It's like good for you, man. You know, I and, think the gauntlet that she threw is even bigger than the one that you're talking yeah. about. So she she kind of with this statement threw down two different gauntlets. The first being for other successful authors uh-huh. because she acknowledges you yeah. know the the yeah. ones that haven't quite made it yet and kind of. Yeah. You know, gives them a pass. Yeah. But 
the real gauntlet, I feel, the one that's going to really truly test is that this is a huge author. Uh-huh. And this author just cut and ran uh-huh. from her publisher. So she's out in the open now. She's out. I mean, but- you know, I, I think that her her she's got books with other places that are already, you know, that are already there and she's already got relationships with certain editors. But you're right. But this is the rare thing where a giant so rare. a giant author who has a well established track record who is definitely has a readership and is very capable of making your publishing house a lot of money. It's just out there for the plucking, the you know, is out to be wooed. And yeah, the way that contracts work and the way that careers work in this industry is that if you're with somebody who's being really good to you and has made you really big. You stick with them. You stick with them because yep. it's better for everybody. Because it's working. If it's working, why mess with it? Like that's why you get these what's called house authors, you know, like people who are just cranking out successful book after successful book. And they're staying in one place because why mess with a good thing? And they're staying on the front list and they're doing all the good stuff. Well, they don't just leave. Yeah. You guys, they don't just leave. And Roxanne Gay just left and she's got a ton of press Uh for this book, this How to Be Heard book. And she said, I will not stand with a publisher who who publishes – books of this nature. Okay, so let's talk about that press for a second because there's there's a final point to that now she could sign with someone else that I think is interesting that I want to get to in a second. But um, one thing I noticed is that, you know, and this gets back a little bit to my point earlier about 1984, was that as soon as any sort of book or literary media sees something hot, they immediately start running their content as it relates to that thing. And you saw like... Um, Suddenly, the New York Times, you know, book review, they just magically had a, uh, you know, a an interview with her ready to go. As soon as everyone started talking about Roxanne Gay, they were like, hey, guess what? We got We've that. got this thing and we're going to publish it right now. And what's interesting about that is it does seem like this move from Gay, um, it's gotten her a lot of good press and justifiably so. It's a brave thing to do. Um, but – the author or the publisher that wants to snag her, they're going to have to back it up. There's a lot of platform built. Like I think that in, in terms of her career, just based on the press I've seen and the public opinion that has kind of really swayed in her way. A lot of people who haven't even read or heard of Roxanne Gay or something like, yeah, her. You know, she's great. What a great move. Um, this is good for her. I know that it's uh, um, you know, she doesn't have a book contract right now, but she's going to have a book contract. This is not someone who's like going to struggle to find a book deal at this point. Um, she, you know, th- there's a lot of good press and a lot of good press from a lot of places that are important to the book world. Um, so it's it's just one more interesting thing. I mean, I think that maybe I wonder if that was part of the calculus, you know, and it's like this is something that. You know, I will be received well for it. There's support for in a community that should support. Like she deserves to be supported. Which means other people might do it, which means that other publishers might, you know, like nut up and decide to to actually, you know, make an editorial stand. And and so right. And so I'm glad I'm glad that she's being um, supported in the way that she is because I think that she deserves it. But when, you know, sometimes when I hear that line about how um, how brave she is or how much she kind of stuck herself out on a limb to do this. Um, I wonder, truthfully, how much of a limb it truly is because she's going to get another book deal somewhere. I think we all agree because she deserves it because she's a successful. She's amazing. And in the meantime, this is very good for, you know, there's a lot of people saying a lot of very justifiably good things about her. Like this is, and this is, I think this is a stroke in the favor of the industry as a whole is that when someone does something 
in this in the vein of goodness and what's right, you know, they should be applauded and talked about for it. Um, it shouldn't be a brave. I think it's a fair point to say that it shouldn't be a brave thing to do this, right? This this is a thing that I feel is right, and so we should be encouraging that. And there should be sort of an infrastructure in place for when someone makes that decision, um, it's correct. And I think we'll see people scrambling to create that infrastructure, right. which I'm really excited yeah, about. Yeah, so it's good. It lays a template maybe for people who, um, you know, are maybe thinking it's like, okay, well, look how. Look how her Q rating, her popularity has skyrocketed. I think, you know, her popularity amongst the book world. Obviously, I'm sure there are some people, you know, the Milo fans are probably not happy with her. They weren't happy with uh, her in the beginning. But they again, they don't care. And Simon Schuster knows that they don't care. You know what I mean? Like it's it's that whole thing again. But um, it does bring up an interesting question. Where is she going to sign? Because yeah. she is – because, she, I mean, in her statement, she has said um, – or I don't know if it's in this statement, but I forget where I read it, but – she doesn't, like, have another book deal lined up for this project yet. It was She's, in like, her still statement. Looking. She said she yeah. hopes to place it somewhere someday. Okay, so there's so, – right. So there's no plan yet. Um, isn't it going to be – you know, she's someone who's who warrants a big five house, right? She's someone who is going to um, command that kind of attention and that kind of money, more importantly, honestly. Um isn't she going to end up somewhere with an equally problematic author as Milo? And what happens when she does? That And I, I maybe that's a contrarian question. But, like, if she, you know, who's going to throw money at Roxgate? Random House is. Well, they publish Ann and Coulter. And they publish Ann Coulter. You know what I mean? Exactly. But And there's someone like that at every house. You know, there's always um, – it's it's not – you know, she's, she's come out on a limb and that's really, really good. And – but it's complicated. You know, if, if you make – if you start to make your publishing decisions about ideology of the house as a whole, you start to run into – you start to – your list of where is an acceptable place to publish based on that ideology shrinks pretty rapidly. And you're going to have to start making consolations and you're going to have to start making um, compromises and things like that. And It will be interesting to it, see where that line it'll is. It will be interesting to see where that line is um, because um, – uh, yeah, no, I'm just fascinated by what her next decision is going to be with this stuff because we're definitely going to come back to that. Like Milo, once there is one. Milo isn't the only problematic author being published, you know, and if he's being called that, there are lots of people who you could lump in with him. Um, and it'll be interesting to see how she responds if someone says, "Well, what about this person at the house you just signed with?" Especially when she wasn't really connected at all to the Milo book. You know, she wasn't at the same member. She wasn't even with an editor who was in-house, like you were saying. Um, but she said she was still too close. And it's like, well, you're going to end up pretty close to someone else who's problematic. And I'm Maybe. interested. And I and I wish her luck. And I think that she's going to have some, you know, this is not the last we're going to hear about her publishing methodology. Maybe she'll start her own house. Maybe she'll <laughs> go with Akashic. Maybe house. she'll, I don't know. I mean, um, you never know. We'll be watching it and we'll be reporting yeah. on it. Yeah, I mean, she's... When you command Big Five attention, um, that's going to invite – you're going to end up somewhere big. And when you end up somewhere big, you're going to end up next to somebody that you don't necessarily like if you've made this your criteria. And I think that's going to be interesting to see how it plays out. Maybe she'll get offered her own imprint. <laughs> Maybe. What, does Lena Dunham slow an imprint? Yes. Oh Lenny. Jesus Christ. Anyway. Anyway. So in lieu of the pub tip yeah. this week, yeah, yeah. in lieu, yeah. we're doing a – Mailbag. 
Mm. Mailbag. So yeah. we have asked our adoring public uh-huh. uh, for questions, and they have given us questions. Uh-huh. And so we're going to read them and then respond to them. Okay, so hit me with the first question. Oh, real Before we start, let's just make sure people understand how to do this. Um, we ask... And this is perpetually, um, you know, use the tag. We check it a lot and we just kind of log them away for when it's time to talk about it. But um, if you just go on Twitter and use hashtag uh, ask print run, we'll see your question. And if it's if it's good and we like it, <laughs> I mean, you know, we're not going to get to every single one. because Sometimes sometimes the questions aren't that good, um, but um, we're going to get to it and. We'll, you know, we'll talk about it and we'll, um, but yeah, if you have a question for us and you want to talk about anything, if it's in response to something one of us has said, or if it's, great, if it's about just anything related to books or even not related to books, um, as you'll see, there's one that's not related to books. (laughs) Really, the big thing is that we seek to answer questions on here that aren't Googleable. Yeah. So, you know, questions about how long your query should be. You can look that up. You, you can, can look, look that up. up or you can, you know, listen on our listen Patreon the, yeah, page. Yeah, exactly. We address that on our special yeah, episodes. We're, we're like, kind of – for this particular segment, we're going to look for the more nebulous things. Yeah, 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 exactly. As so, we're about to show you. Hit us with the first one. Okay, this is concerning pseudonyms and slash or pen, na- pen uh-huh. names. Uh-huh. What are your thoughts? Are there still acceptable reasons for their use? And if so, what are they? I haven't seen a pen name in a long time. Not, that is not to say that they are um, unacceptable or anything because I believe that they are. But have you, when was, like, have you dealt with a pen name yes. in a while? Well, tell me about it. What? Well, okay. So in my area of publishing, uh-huh. there are two types of people that use pen names. Yeah. One are the people who write romance and erotica okay. and they don't want their grandmothers to find out that they're <laughs> publishing. Um, so okay. one of my authors uses a pen name and she – you know, lives in the Bible Belt and in a really, really conservative town, and she writes erotic romance, and she's like, "Nope, yep. we're 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 using a pen name." And her yep. pen name is actually like really well connected to her real name, and I love it. Anyway, okay. Um, so that's one one place where pen names run rampant. You know, even amongst if you're writing something kind of saucy, saucy. You know, <laughs> even even romance writers yeah. use pen names for different types of romance. Yeah. Like, so they'll have one pen name for like paranormal. They'll have one for like erotica. They'll have one for whatever. Uh-huh. I don't think that that's particularly necessary unless you're like crazy big. But anyway, yeah. so that's one way that I think is really great. The other way that I see often is people writing specifically genre fiction, Uh and they're trying to disguise their gender. Interesting. So the best and uh, the best example for this is Joanne Rowling. Why do you feel? J.K. Rowling. Yeah. Because her book is about a boy, and it's adventure-y, and it's, like, magic-y. And and she she, didn't feel she could sell it as a... Um, you know, a lot of authors, you know, um, Nora Jemison is N.K. Jemison. Uh You know, like... A lot – like in the past, a lot of female writers specifically have been – or people that are writing um, main characters that are not – that don't share their own gender. Yeah. They'll use pen names for that. And I'm here to tell you that's bullshit. It's 2017 and get over it. Yeah. Like if your like male sword and sorcery readers can't get over the fact that like (laughs) – you're a lady and find you're writing. Yeah, 
find some new goddamn readers. Like Jesus. Yeah. Like it, yeah. you know, really the only yeah. reason for a pen name is if you want to keep your real life and your writing life totally separate yeah. or you really hate your real name. Yeah. Like it's it's like if you're pandering to your audience saying, "Well, they're not going to like that I am a woman." Yeah. Then like no. Yeah. Then you're just playing into old stereotypes and I'm not here for that. Yeah. Anyway. Okay, so um, I'll read the next question. When does an agent choose personal taste over saleability or vice versa? Can I answer? Yes. <laughs> um, if I like it, I want it. I, I know that sounds kind of simplistic, but, like, if I have taste and it's, like, hitting – like, if this is a book that I really like and I haven't quite yet figured out what to do with it, I probably want it. You know, and I'll just figure out how we're going to sell it later if we do or not, you know. But um, at least you tried. It's really, yeah, no, and it's you like, were it's really about it. hard for me to want to turn down things I like. I don't, as an editor, I did it all the time because there are, there are considerations for your house and your list and where, how it fits amongst the other books you already have acquired and what you're going to publish. But as an agent, where you could take it to any house with any editorial vision, um, that. That, you know, a bit of taste really opens up and it's like I can, you know, let's find a place for it. It's like when the place is set, i.e. when you're an editor um, and you are acquiring with a specific brand that's already established in mind. And sometimes, yeah, you read something that is good but isn't for you guys because it just doesn't fit with the program you guys are running. Um, but as an agent, I don't know. like Taste I, I, rules. Yeah, it's like my, my the 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 brand is entirely based around my taste. And so, it, and editors see. Here's the thing: editors know your taste. Once you've been yeah. in this business long enough, they know exactly. If you yeah. send them a book, they know exactly what they're gonna get. Yeah, I have. I you know it maybe at least once a month, maybe twice a month. I get an email from somebody saying, "I have an offer from a publishing house. Yeah, would you like to be my agent?" Mm. And almost all of the time. I have said no. Yeah. I have said yes maybe 2% of the time. Yeah. And that's because the book was really great. Actually, one of those times, I think it's been it's happened for a total of 3 times. Uh-huh. Um and one of those 3 times, I was already planning on offering anyway. So like yeah. I actually just sent a note to the author like, "Hey, can we have the call? Like, can we have a call?" And they're like, "Yeah, BT Dubs, I have an offer on the table." Mm-hmm. I was like, "Neat. That's cool." Um it's always personal taste over saleability. You know, I turn down books all the time where I'm like, yeah, that would be a great thing, but it's not me. And we, you know, we have to read these books so many times and we have to sell it so many times to so many different people that if we don't love it, if it's not like ours, yeah. then we're not going to do well with it. Like yeah. the book's not going to be successful if we don't love it. At such an early stage, I think personal taste probably – comes before saleability because you can shape it and figure it out from there. Exactly. All right. So next one. Favorite illicit kindergarten snack, boogers, earwax, or paste? (laughs) So here's the thing. Mm. I have never come across paste in my real life. Hold on a second. Hold on. What What the hell did you just say to me? Okay. You've never seen paste? No, I've seen glue, but I've never seen paste. Oh, you've never pasted something like the big old like brush? With, no, like, the... I've never pasted anything. Oh, I hear it's delicious. I, I hear that too, but I've <laughs> never come across it because I was a child of the 90s. I don't know. Well, I didn't eat any of this stuff. I was pretty... Uh, what did you eat? I was pretty germaphobic as a child. You still are. <laughs> <laughs> I Yeah, no, I wasn't big on eating stuff. 
that was just like laying around. I wasn't like one of those little kindergartners who was like Putting looking stuff to in your yeah, I was just like, you know, scrounging around for snacks, even if you couldn't find any food. That wasn't really me. Um so unfortunately I, I am a finicky kindergarten snacker. I didn't eat any of those things, but here's what I did eat uh-huh. when I was very young. That is to this day I think about it, I'm like weird. Um I every day after kindergarten or whatever it happened for years. It was, you know, from like preschool all the way on to like third grade. Mm-hmm. I would come home and I would pour myself a big old bag of frozen sugar snap peas. <laughs> and then I would take Heinz ketchup and squeeze the ketchup all over the frozen sugar snap peas. Jail. <laughs> frozen sugar snap peas and go. ketchup. <laughs> Straight to jail. <laughs> I stopped, Eric. I stopped. Yeah, like last week. Um, okay, so. So I did that. All right. So now I just eat like raw, like plain non-frozen sugar snap peas on their own. Okay, so let's, since we're running a little long here, let's save this next one. And I want to replace it with one that I got directly today, um, which was, it was sort of an inside joke sent to me by a dear friend. And she asked, what are the good ways to get a successful book about taxidermy published. Send it to Don Frederick. <laughs> she liked taxidermy. Okay. We so, got to have her on. So Don, um, so Don is the owner of our agency and Don and I, oh God, it must be two years ago now. We went to Portland for a book event. We, wait, hold on. There's actually a taxidermy story here. I was about to like go into why this person had asked me this question, but you actually have publishing advice for a taxidermy yes. book? Yes. Jesus. All so right, great. we went. Are you listening, so, Carrie? So we went. <laughs> So we went to the store and it was like they had like crystals and like air plants and like all of these like skeletons. They had this like tiny little taxidermy mouse in like a in a in a like a magic performer's costume. Mm -hmm. And we were walking around and there's tons of taxidermy. And Dawn is walking around and she keeps looking up at the wall and there's this taxidermy jackalope which is a taxidermied rabbit head with antlers that were superimposed on this animal and so she was like man i want it but it was like really expensive and then the person that we were with was like let me lay away she goes okay what like and we just like left a few days Uh, later she calls the store and puts the taxidermy jackalope on layaway and so now uh she have it yes it's in her house Oh man, I gotta go see it. It's great. Don't invite me over. Yeah, it's great. It's um, great. Yeah, that is great. Um, I'm surprised it was her first piece of taxidermy. <laughs> so if you're wondering about getting taxidermy published, go to Don. So this question got asked to me um, by a good friend named Carrie. Um, hello, Carrie. Um, she was a coworker of mine at Oxford University Press, and I remember. I'm trying to think of where this first came up. And we were figuring – I was working on science books at the time at OUP. And I and I went over to her desk once, as I often did, and was like, all right, what kind of books should we be looking for, Carrie? Like, what's my new acquisition strategy? Like, what kind of books? And she was like ta- – every single time, she was so about the taxidermy. And we used to have these, like, 30-minute <laughs> conversations in the middle of the workday. I worked very hard um, <laughs> about just, like ta- – like, um, like, Oxford has this series called uh, What Everyone Needs to Know. About taxidermy. And it's, and it's just like picks like topics in the world. And it's a, um, but we like wanted a what everyone needs to know or a very short introduction to taxidermy. Um, so that was, that was a good use of company time. Um, everyone's I, very happy with the amount of money they've paid me to perform tasks. When I was the editorial intern at Learner, 
which is a local yeah. like education children's publisher here in the Twin Cities. Um, I was in college, and one of my tasks was to go through and find new media materials for like supplements to these books, and yeah. they were like sciency outdoor books. Uh-huh. And one of them was on hunting, so I had to find like third grade appropriate YouTube videos on like <sighs> hunting things, and so I had to find like the least hey, kids the least bloody like video of somebody like pulling the, <laughs> pulling the like the leg off yeah, the yeah, deer. Yeah. yeah, good. Anyway, yeah. I also had I also spent three hours once looking at spiders. Anyway. And on that note, I think we're good. We're good. We'll see you next week where we talk about lady bits. Lady bits. Bye.